Chapter Forty of Issy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Read by Barry O'Neill. Issy Popenjoy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Forty. As to Bluebeard. When Lord George left his house alone, he was very wretched, and his wife, whom he left behind him, was as wretched as himself. Of course the matter had not decided itself in this way without very much absolute quarrelling between them. Lord George had insisted, had stamped his foot, and had even talked of force. Mary, prompted by her father, had protested that she would not run away from the evil tongues of people who would be much more bitter in her absence than they would dare to be if she remained among them. He, when he found that his threat of forcible abduction was altogether vain, had to make up his mind whether he also would remain. But both the dean and his wife had begged that he would do so, and he would not even seem to act in obedience to them. So he went, groaning much in spirit, puzzled to think what story he should tell to his mother and sisters, terribly anxious as to the future, and in spirit repentant for the rashness of his conduct at the ball. Before he was twenty miles out of London he was thinking with infinite regret of his love for his wife, already realizing the misery of living without her, almost stirred to get out at the next station and return by the first train to Munster Court. In this hour of his sorrow there came upon him a feeling of great hatred for Mrs. Houghton. He almost believed that she had, for her own vile purposes, excited Captain de Baron to make love to his wife and then in regard to that woman his wife had behaved so well surely something was due to so much generosity and then when she had been angry with him she had been more beautiful than ever what a change had those few months in london made in her she had lost her childish little timidities and had bloomed forth a beautiful woman he had no doubt as to her increased loveliness and had been proud to think that all had acknowledged it but as to the childish timidity perhaps he would have preferred that it should not have been so quickly or so entirely banished even at brotherton he hankered to return to london but had he done so the brotherton world would have known it he put himself into a carriage instead and had himself driven through the park to cross hall all this occurred on the day but one subsequent to the ball and he had by the previous post informed lady sarah that he was coming but in that letter he had said that he would bring his wife with him, and on his immediate arrival had to answer questions as to her unexpected absence. Her father was very unwilling that she should come, he said. But I thought he was at the hotel, said Lady Sarah. He is in Munster Court now. To tell the truth, I am not best pleased that it should be so, but at the last minute I did not like to contradict her i hate london and everything in it she likes it and as there was a kind of bargain made i could not well depart from it and you have left her alone with her father in london said lady susanna with a tone of pretended dismay how can she be alone if her father is with her answered lord george who did not stand in awe of lady susanna as he did of lady sarah nothing further at the moment was said but all the sisters felt that there was something wrong i don't think it at all right that mary should be left with the dean said the old lady to her second daughter but the old lady was specially prejudiced against the dean as being her eldest son's great enemy 
Before the day was over, Lord George wrote a long letter to his wife, full of affection indeed, but still more full of covert reproaches. He did not absolutely scold her, but he told her that there could be no happiness between a wife and a husband unless the wife would obey, and he implored her to come to him with as little delay as possible. If she would only come, all should be right between them. Mary, when her husband was really gone, was much frightened at her own firmness. That doctrine of obedience to her husband had been accepted by her in full. When disposed to run counter to the ladies at Manor Cross, she always had declared to herself that they bore no authority delegated from George, and that she would obey George, and no one but George. She had told him more than once, half playfully, that if he wanted anything done, he must tell her himself and this, though he understood it to contain rebellion against the Germains generally, had a pleasant flavour with him as acknowledging so completely his own power. She had said to her father, and unfortunately to Mrs. Houghton, when Mrs. Houghton was her friend, that she was not going to do what all the Germain women told her, but she had always spoken of her husband's wishes as absolutely imperative. Now she was in open mutiny against her husband, and as she thought of it, it seemed to her to be almost impossible that peace should be restored between them. "'I think I will go down very soon,' she said to her father, after she had received her husband's letter. "'What do you call very soon?' "'In a day or two. "'Do not do anything of the kind. Stay here till the appointed time comes.' It is only a fortnight now. I have made arrangements at Brotherton, so that I can be with you till then. After that, come down to me. Of course your husband will come over to you at the deanery. But if he shouldn't come, then he would be behaving very wickedly. But of course he will come. He is not a man to be obstinate in that fashion. I do not know that, papa. But I do. You had better take my advice in this matter. Of course I do not want to foster a quarrel between you and your husband. Pray, pray don't let there be a quarrel. Of course not. But the other night he lost his head and treated you badly. You and I are quite willing to forgive and forget all that. Any man may do a foolish thing, and men are to be judged by general results rather than single acts. He is very kind to me, generally. Just so, and I am not angry with him in the least. But after what occurred, it would be wrong that you should go away at once. You felt it yourself at the moment. But anything would be better than quarrelling, papa. Almost anything would be better than a lasting quarrel with your husband. But the best way to avoid that is to show him that you know how to be firm in such an emergency as this. She was, of course, compelled by her father's presence and her father's strength to remain in town, but she did so, longing every hour to pack up and be off to Cross Hall. She had very often doubted whether she could love her husband as a husband ought to be loved, but now, in her present trouble, she felt sure of her own heart. She had never been really on bad terms with him before since their marriage, and the very fact of their separation increased her tenderness to him in a wonderful degree. She answered his letter with language full of love and promises and submission, loaded with little phrases of feminine worship, merely adding that papa thought that she had better stay in town till the end of the month. There was not a word of reproach in it. She did not allude to his harsh conduct at the ball, nor did she write the name of Mrs. Houghton. 
Her father was very urgent with her to see all her friends, to keep any engagements previously made, to be seen at the play, and to let all the world know by her conduct that she was not oppressed by what had taken place. There was some intention of having the Kappa Kappa danced again, as far as possible, by the same people. Lord Giblet was to retire in favour of some more expert performer, but the others were supposed to be all worthy of an encore. But, of course, there arose a question as to Lady George. There could be no doubt that Lord George had disapproved very strongly of the Kappa Kappa. The matter got to the dean's ears, and the dean counselled his daughter to join the party yet again. What would he say, papa? The dean was of the opinion that in such case Lord George would say and do much less than he had said and done before. According to his views, Lord George must be taught that his wife had her privileges as well as he his. This fresh difficulty dissolved itself because the second performance was fixed for a day after that on which it had been long known that Lady George was to leave London, and even the dean did not propose that she should remain in town after that date with a direct view to the Kappa Kappa. She was astonished at the zeal with which he insisted that she should go out into the gay world. He almost ridiculed her when she spoke of economy in her dress, and seemed to think that it was her duty to be a woman of fashion. He still spoke to her from time to time of the Popenjoy question, always asserting his conviction that, whatever the Marquis might think, even if he were himself deceived through ignorance of the law, the child would be at last held to be illegitimate. They tell me, too, he said, that his life is not worth a year's purchase poor little boy. Of course, if he had been born as the son of the Marquis of Brotherton ought to be born, nobody would wish him anything but good. I don't wish him anything but good, said Mary. But as it is, continued the dean, apparently not observing his daughter's remark, everybody must feel that it would be better for the family that he should be out of the way. Nobody can think that such a child can live to do honour to the British peerage. He might be well brought up, he wouldn't be well brought up. He has an Italian mother and Italian belongings, and everything around him as bad as it can be. But the question at last is one of right. He was clearly born when his mother was reputed to be the wife, not of his father, but of another man. That cock-and-bull story which we have heard may be true. It is possible. But I could not rest in my bed if I did not persevere in ascertaining the truth." The dean did persevere, and was very constant in his visits to Mr. Battle's office. At this time Miss Tallowax came up to town, and she also stayed for a day or two in Munster Court. What passed between the dean and his aunt on the subject, Mary, of course, did not hear. But she soon found that Miss Tallowax was as eager as her father, and she learned that Miss Tallowax had declared that the inquiry should not languish from want of funds. Miss Tallowax was quite alive to the glory of the Brotherton connection. As the month drew to an end, Mary, of course, called on all her London friends. Her father was always eager to know whom she saw, and whether any allusion was made by any of them to the scene at the ball. But there was one person, who had been a friend, on whom she did not call, and this omission was observed by the dean. "'Don't you ever see Mrs. Houghton now?' he asked. "'No, papa,' said Mary, with prompt decision. "'Why not?' "'I don't like her.' "'Why don't you like her? You used to be friends. Have you quarrelled?' 
"'Yes, I have quarrelled with her. "'What did she do?' Mary was silent. "'Is it a secret?' "'Yes, papa, it is a secret. "'I would rather you would not ask. "'But she is a nasty, vile creature, "'and I will never speak to her again.' "'That is strong language, Mary. "'It is, and now that I have said that, "'pray don't talk about her any more.' "'The dean was discreet, "'and did not talk about Mrs. Houghton any more.' but he set his mind work to guess, and guessed something near the truth. Of course he knew that his son-in-law had professed at one time to love this lady when she had been Miss de Baron, and he had been able to see that subsequently to that they had been intimate friends. "'I don't think, my dear,' he said, laughing, "'that you can be jealous of her attractions.' I am not in the least jealous of her, papa. I don't know any one that I think so ugly. She is a nasty, made-up thing. But pray don't talk about her any more. Then the dean almost knew that Mary had discovered something, and was too noble to tell a story against her husband. The day but one before she was to leave town, Mrs. Montacute Jones came to her. She had seen her kind old friend once or twice since the catastrophe at the ball, but always in the presence of other persons. Now they were alone together. "'Well, my dear,' said Mrs. Jones, "'I hope you have enjoyed your short season. We have all been very fond of you.' "'You have been very kind to me, Mrs. Jones.' "'I do my best to make young people pleasant, my dear. You ought to have liked it all, for I don't know anybody who has been so much admired.' His Royal Highness said the other day that you were the handsomest woman in London. His Royal Highness is an old fool, said Mary, laughing. He is generally thought to be a very good judge in that matter. You are going to keep the house, are you not? Oh, yes, I think there is a lease. I am glad of that. It is a nice little house, and I should be sorry to think that you are not coming back. We are always to live here half the year, I believe, said Mary. That was agreed when we married, and that's why I go away now. Lord George, I suppose, likes the country best. I think he does. I don't, Mrs. Jones. They are both very well in their way, my dear. I am a wicked old woman who like to have everything gay. I never go out of town till everything is over, and I never come up till everything begins. We have a nice place down in Scotland, and you must come and see me there some autumn. And then we go to Rome. It's a pleasant way of living, though we have to move about so much. It must cost a great deal of money. Well, yes, one can't drive four in hand so cheap as a pair. Mr. Jones has a large income. This was the first direct intimation Mary had ever received that there was a Mr. Jones. But we weren't always rich. When I was your age I hadn't nearly so nice a house as you. Indeed, I hadn't a house at all, for I wasn't married, and was thinking whether I would take or reject a young barrister of the name of Smith, who had nothing a year to support me on. You see, I never got among the aristocratic names, as you have done. I don't care a bit about that. But I do. I like Germains and Talbots and Howards, and so does everybody else. Only so many people tell lies about it. I like having lords in my drawing-room. They look handsomer and talk better than other men. That's my experience. And you are pretty nearly sure with them that you won't find you have got somebody quite wrong. I know a lord, said Mary, who isn't very right. That is, I don't know him, for I never saw him. You mean your wicked brother-in-law. I should like to know him of all things. 
He'd be quite an attraction. I suppose he knows how to behave like a gentleman. I'm not so sure of that. He was very rough to papa. Ah, oh, yes, I think we can understand that, my dear. Your father hasn't made himself exactly pleasant to the Marquis. Not that I say he's wrong. I think it was a pity, because everybody says that the little Lord Popenjoy will die. You were talking of me and my glories, but long before you are my age, you will be much more glorious. You will make a charming marchioness. I never think about it, Mrs. Jones, and I wish papa didn't. Why shouldn't the little boy live? I could be quite happy enough as I am, if people would only be good to me and let me alone. Have I distressed you, my dear? asked the old woman. Oh, dear, no, not you. You mean what happened at my house the other night? I didn't mean anything particular, Mrs. Jones, but I do think that people sometimes are very ill-natured. I think you know that was Lord George's doing. He shouldn't have taken you off so suddenly. It wasn't your fault that the stupid man tripped. I suppose he doesn't like Captain de Baron. Don't talk about it, Mrs. Jones. Only that I know the world so well, and what I say might perhaps be of use. Of course I know that he has gone out of town. Yes, he has gone. I was so glad you didn't go with him. People will talk, you know, and it did look as though he were a sort of bluebeard. Bluebeards, my dear, must be put down. There may be most well-intentioned bluebeards who have no chamber of horrors, no secrets. Mary thought of the letter from Mrs. Houghton, of which nobody knew but herself, who never caught off anybody's heads, but still interfered dreadfully with the comfort of a household. Lord George is very nearly all that a man ought to be. He is the best man in the world, said Mary. I am sure you think so, but he shouldn't be jealous, and above all he shouldn't show that he's jealous. You were bound, I think, to stay behind and show the world that you had nothing to fear. I suppose the dean counselled it. Yes, he did. Fathers of married daughters shouldn't often interfere, but there I think he was right. It is much better for Lord George himself that it should be so. There is nothing so damaging to a young woman as to have it supposed that she has had to be withdrawn from the influence of a young man. It would be wicked of anybody to think so, said Mary, sobbing. But they must have thought so if you hadn't remained. You may be sure, my dear, that your father was quite right. I am sorry that you could not make one in the dance again, because we shall have changed Lord Giblet for Lord Augustus Grandison and I am sure it will be done very well. But, of course, I couldn't ask you to stay for it. As your departure was fixed beforehand, you ought not to stay for it. But that is very different from being taken away in a jiffy, like some young man who is spending more than he ought to spend, and is hurried off suddenly, nobody knows where. Mary, when Mrs. Jones had left the house, found that, upon the whole, she was thankful to her friend for what had been said. It pained her to hear her husband described as a jealous bluebeard, but the fact of his jealousy had been so apparent that in any conversation on the matter intended to be useful so much had to be acknowledged. She, however, had taken the strong course of trusting to her father rather than to her husband, and she was glad to find that her conduct and her father's conduct were approved by so competent a judge as Mrs. Montacute Jones and throughout the whole interview there had been an air of kindness which Mary had well understood. The old lady had intended to be useful, and her intentions were accepted. 
on the next morning soon after breakfast the dean received a note which puzzled him much and for an hour or two left him in doubt as to what he would do respecting it whether he would comply with or refuse to comply with the request made in it at first he said nothing of the letter to his daughter he had as she was aware intended to go to lincoln's inn early in the day but he sat thinking over something instead of leaving the house till at last he went to mary and put the letter into her hands that he said is one of the most unexpected communications i have ever had in my life and one which it is most difficult to answer just read it the letter which was very short was as follows the marquis of brotherton presents his compliments to the dean of brotherton and begs to say that he thinks that some good might now be done by a personal interview perhaps the dean will not object to call on the marquis here at some hour after two o'clock to-morrow scumberg's hotel albemarle street twenty ninth june eighteen seventy blank but we go to-morrow said mary ah he means to-day this note was written last night i have been thinking about it and i think i shall go have you written to him a man who sends to me a summons to come to him so immediately as that has no right to expect an answer he does not mean anything honest then why do you go i don't choose to appear to be afraid to meet him everything that i do is done above board i rather imagine that he doesn't expect me to come but i will not let him have to say that he had asked me and that i had refused i shall go oh papa what will he say to you i don't think he can eat me my dear nor will he dare even to murder me i dare say he would if he could and so it was decided and at the hour appointed the dean sallied forth to keep the appointment End of chapter forty